Let's let's go to God and let's ask for his help as we as we come to his word. Father in heaven, thank you for causing us to be born again through your living and abiding word. And we are coming now, Lord, to hear that word. We've just read it together. And now we're going to hear it explained and proclaimed. And I'm praying that you would help us to respond to what you said through Peter with faith and with obedience and with joy. God, we we need your help. But we've seen, Lord, here in your word, in this passage we've just read, that your power through your word is able to bring life out of non-life, life out of death. So we know, Lord, that your, your word is powerful and that you love to work through it. So we're asking that that's what you do here, Lord. Lord, whether you want to use this morning to bring new life to those where there is no life or whether you want to use this morning to reinvigorate and re-energize the life of those who do have life both are works of your spirit and we're trusting you Lord to do what's best for you to you we're looking to you Lord Keep us in that spot. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Ten weeks into our series in First Peter, it's helpful for us to go back to the beginning and remember some of the big ideas. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were in exile. And like we saw a few weeks ago, these people may have been in exile in a, in a very literal sense. Uh, the, the Roman Empire at the time was known to just kick people out for believing the wrong things. And there, it's very plausible that Peter had gotten to know these Christians in the city of Rome. And they had been expelled for their Christian faith. And so they were living in these areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern-day Turkey. And they may have been literal out exiles, like they had just had to pack up and, and leave. But as we explore the letter that Peter wrote, what, we can see that what really made these Christians exiles and strangers to the people around them was their faith in Christ. Even if, even if they were living in the same towns, even if these Christians were born in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, everything still works because it was their faithfulness to Jesus that made them seem different to the people around them. In fact, their faithfulness to Jesus made them seem as different as if they had been born in a completely different world. And that's because they had been born in a completely different world. They had been born again, as Peter reminds them over and over. They had been born the first time 
in their families and societies, whether that was in Rome or whether that was in these places in modern-day Turkey. They had been born the first time into human families, human cultures, human societies, but now they had been given a brand new life through the Father's mercy. Jesus had bought them on the cross from their human heritage, and he'd given them something new, a new hope, a new inheritance, a new family, a new story. Like, like Josh explained for us last week, it, it wasn't so much that Jesus had come into their lives as much as they had been brought into Jesus' life, into Jesus' story, into God's big and, and ancient plan. And being in Christ made them be on the outside of their old society. Living to please God meant that they often displeased the community around them. Acting like God's children made them seem like foreigners to the people that they grew up with. And so it makes sense that as Peter writes to them, he wants to talk about their relationship with the surrounding world, which he's done. He's talked about, for example, their various trials in verse 6. And, and what we're going to see as we go throughout Peter's letters is a lot of those trials were persecution. They were persecuted by the people who lived around them. He's told them not to be pushed back into the mold of their former desires, as we saw in verse 14, their former way of life. He, he's reminded them in, in verse 18 that they've been bought, ransomed from the worthless ways in their human heritages. And so Peter has talked a lot about their relationship with the surrounding world. And he's gonna, we're going to hear a lot more about that. Now, it also makes sense that Peter wants to talk to them about their relationship with the triune God. God, the Father, has provided them with this hope and inheritance. They love Jesus, though they've never seen him. They've been devoted to God through the Spirit. They call on God through prayer. They're to live before him with holy fear. Peter said a lot about their relationship with, with God and, and, and more to come. But there's a third category of relationship that, that's really important here, and it's their relationships with each other. And doesn't it make sense why Peter would want to would talk to them about their relationships with each other? Especially makes sense if we remember that being exiles was a, a, a group experience. See, this is something that we, we can miss in English. But in the original language... Every time that the word you is used in 1 Peter, it is a plural you. So we've, we've talked about this. You may have heard me say this before. In English, we don't have a plural you. If I want to talk to one of you or all of you, it's the same word. See, Greek and many other languages in the world have a you for one person and a you for a group. Every time the word you is used in 1 Peter, it's the group you. So these people were not individual exiles. They were a group of exiles. There is an inheritance kept in heaven for you all. In this you all rejoice. Though you all have not seen him, you all love him. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you all. As he who called you all is holy, you all also be holy in all your conduct. Know that you all were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. See, see that we've just kind of 
roughly quoted some of these verses in Peter and, and, and adding the sense that this is for all. Peter has written this not to individual exiles, but to a community of exiles, a community of people who were strangers and foreigners to the people around them. And if Peter's readers are going to thrive in exile, they're going to need rich and robust relationships with one another within this community of fellow strangers. They're going to need rich and robust relationships with each other if they're going to make it, if they're going to thrive in exile. If you have attended church for longer than one week, you know how challenging it is to have rich and robust relationships with one another as Christians. Christians should not have such a hard time getting along, but they do. Peter knows this as much as we do. And so starting in verse 22, all the way up to to verse 10 in chapter 2, Peter starts instructing his readers, not on their relationship with the world, not on their relationship with the world, not on their relationship with God, but on their relationships with each other. If they're going to thrive in exile, surrounded by a hostile world, they're going to need each other. And, and we've been talking here about Peter's readers, but, but as we've touched on many times, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is for you. We're in the, almost the exact same situation as Peter's readers. Whether we've been displaced or not, we should find ourselves in the same place. What Peter says to them is for us. So let's listen in. And, and, and here's, here's the idea here, and, and here's what happened there with our scripture reading. From, from chapter 1, verse 22, up to chapter 2, verse 3, it's essentially one thought. And we're splitting it up into two sermons because of time and because we want to be able to take uh, just an, enough that we can really wrap our heads around. If we were to walk through all of this in one go, it'd just be a little bit too much, not just time-wise, time but just a little bit too much for us to process. But just know that, that what we're going to be experiencing today is basically part one of, of a two-part sermon, or maybe even just one sermon cut in half. All of this section, from chapter 1, verse 22, to chapter 2, verse 3, is built around this one main command in verse 22, love one another. That's, that's the main command here. Peter's given a number of commands in, 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 in the letter up until now. And what we've seen is that those commands are often sandwiched with reasons for those commands. This is something we talked about at the parenting workshop last, last Saturday, of how, or sorry, last Sunday, of how um, God very often does not just tell us to do things and then say, just because I said so. Rather, one of the ways God motivates us to obey is by giving us reasons for why we should obey. And that's, that's what's going on here. So there's this core idea, love one another. There's two reasons why we should love one another. And then when you get to chapter 2, you have a description of what it looks like to love one another. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Like that's, that's fleshing out this big command to love one another. 
So like I said, we're going to be dividing it up into two weeks, and today we're basically just going to look at these two reasons, two big reasons for loving one another. Next week, we're going to look more at the command to love one another, and then the, the material in chapter two about what it looks like to love one another. So if that makes sense, today's the two reasons. Next Sunday is what those reasons are, are, are for. But even today, as we look at these two reasons, we don't want to lose sight of where this is headed. It's headed towards love. The exiles love for each other as they walk with God in a hostile world. So let's look at the first reason in verse 22. But before we look at it, let's ask a question. And these, these kinds of questions I find so helpful. If you were writing a letter to a group of Christians and you wanted to encourage them to love one another and you wanted to give them a reason for why they should love one another, what would be a reason you would give them? I mean, we could probably come up with a long list. But what would be the first reason that you would give to a group of Christians, here's why you should love one another? Questions like this really help me get inside the head of of the biblical authors, seeing how they thought and and often how their thinking is different from mine. Why should Christians love one another? Peter's first reason, we should love one another because we've purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Did you get all that? Don't worry, we're not in a rush. That's why we're taking two weeks. So we're going to do first, we're going to unpack these words. This first reason for love. And let's just look at that very first phrase in verse 22. Having purified your souls. Peter's readers and all Christians are people who have purified their souls. Souls here, like back in verse 9, is not talking about just one part of us. It's a way of talking about all of us. And the word purify here is talking about about a cleanness, moral cleanness, being cleansed from sin and, and consecrated to God. And you might say, I thought that Jesus did that. I thought Jesus washed us clean from our sin. And he did. But what Peter says here is so have you. Having purified your souls. That's what what it says. Peter's pointing here to the role that Christians play in the purification, the cleansing, the cleaning of our own souls. We have a role to play in that. We heard the gospel and we responded to it. We repented. Think of what repenting is. It's turning aside from sin in order to follow Christ. We walked out of the pigsty and headed home to our father to use language from the the parable of the prodigal son. We obeyed the command of James 4.8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Christians are those who have responded to that. And so Peter's right on the mark to describe Christians as those who have purified their souls. It's what happens when we repent and turn to Christ. Now the word having at the beginning of verse 22 is really important. Having purified your souls. 
It points to, to the idea that this verb here of purifies your souls is, is pointing to something that happened in the past, but which has on, ongoing effects for today. It's like saying having been born. Okay, how many times were you born? Just once, but uh, the act of being born still is affecting you today. I mean, it, if you're here, it is, right? You, it's, an, it's a past event with an ongoing effect. And it's a similar thing that Peter's talking about here. Peter's not talking about the ongoing work of purifying our souls that happens week after week as we seek to obey the Lord and walk in the Spirit. But rather, Peter here is pointing to the, the decisive turning away from sin that happened when we first started to follow Jesus. When we first turned from sin to Christ, that moment or that, that event is what he's talking about here. It's when you purified your soul. And he says that we purified our souls by our obedience to the truth, which again points to the time that we first believed the gospel. Obedience to the truth is talking about coming to faith in Jesus. Up in verse 2 of First Peter here, when he talked about that we were foreknown in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, we saw that that obedience to Jesus Christ is talking about coming into a relationship with Him. And this is language that, that the authors of the New Testament use in different places. Romans 1.5, Paul talks about his mission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. It's talking about Gentiles coming to believe in Jesus, and he calls it obedience. Coming to Jesus is about being obedient to him. And, and it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul, the apostle of salvation by grace through faith, uses the word obedience several times in the book of Romans to talk about coming to believe in Jesus. So what's going on here? Why, why is Peter, why is Paul, why are they talking about coming to Jesus in terms of obedience? Well, think of it this way. The gospel is an announcement of what Jesus has done and what it means. And the gospel comes with a command. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? So, so we get, we've got all these things in our head from our culture today that the gospel is just an invitation. Like, why, why don't you get to know Jesus? In the Bible, the gospel comes with a command. God commands all people everywhere to repent, is what Paul said in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. We need to get this in our heads. God commands the town of Nippowin to repent. It's not just about inviting people to get some cool benefits in their life. God commands people to repent. And when we hear that gospel message within the gospel command... To repent and believe, we can respond two ways, obediently or disobediently. And many, many, many people disobey the gospel, which is biblical language. They disobey the command to repent and believe. But Christians are those who obey the command to repent and believe. Right? And that's why in Romans 6.17, Paul describes Christians as those who have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Our first turning aside from sin, turning aside to Jesus, and believing in him 
was an act of obedience. Now we need to clarify here that it was an act of obedience that came from where? From faith. Right? You don't obey if you don't believe. We obeyed Jesus because we believed. We, we obeyed the command to repent and believe because we believed that he was saying the truth, that he was who he said he was. And we need to remember that it's our faith, not our obedience, that is counted to us as righteousness. We are saved by grace through faith, not grace through obedience. So, theologically, if I can use that word without scaring too many people, theologically, there is a distinction between faith and obedience. But practically, in terms of the way the Christian life works, you never find them apart from each other. Faith and obedience are like like a newlywed couple. You know, you're, you're sure that they're two separate people, but it's kind of hard to tell because you never see one without the other. That that's faith and obedience. Now, again, on on Sunday at the parenting workshop, we we, we looked at Ephesians six and how it's so interesting that Paul gets one shot to address the children in the Ephesians church, and what's he tell them to do? To obey their parents and the Lord. I mean, isn't that strange? Like, like if, if you were to do like a kid's message and like the one thing you said was obey your parents, it'd be like, man, why are you so hung up on obedience? Like, why don't you say something like be all you can be or chase your dreams? Like, why is Paul so hung up on kids obeying their parents? Well, that's because obedience is not some fringe part of the Christian life. Obedience isn't like, like something that, you know, if you want to go deeper in your walk with the Lord, you start obeying. Everything we do as Christians, we do in response to God's word, which means everything we do is an act of obedience, which means that obedience is a central part of the Christian life. We believe God and then we obey him and you can't have one without the other. And I think it's very telling of the state of much of Christianity in the West how uncomfortable people get when we start talking about obeying the Lord, when in the Bible it is so central. Christians are obeyers. And we, Peter says, purified our souls by our obedience to the truth. And that's just talking about coming to faith in Jesus. Now there's one more phrase here in this first reason, verse 22, and this phrase tells us what this was for, the goal. What was the purpose of purifying your soul by your obedience to the truth? What was the purpose of that? Where was it all headed? And Peter's answer is that it was headed towards love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for what? for a sincere brotherly love. So if, here's what we're saying, purifying your souls by your obedience to the truth is talking about when you came to Christ, being converted. Then Peter's saying that a goal of conversion, a goal of becoming a Christian, is sincere brotherly love. This is what we purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Now we're going to look next week in more depth at those words sincere and the words brotherly love. 
But here's, here's, the, here's what Peter's saying here. We did not become a Christian just so that we could enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus. You know the Jesus and me thing? We didn't become a Christian just so we could enjoy God's wonderful plan for our life. Just so we could escape God's judgment and, and go to heaven. Peter's saying that we follow Jesus, we became Christians for love. So that we could love. Now, I understand many of us may not have known that at the time. We may not have known that when we said yes to Jesus, we were saying yes to love. Right? When we first received the gospel, you know, like someone's just a brand new Christian and someone comes up and goes, I'm so glad that you've purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. I mean, they probably look at you like you're speaking Russian or something. But that is exactly why Peter is telling us this here, right? This is, what, this is why Peter is explaining this all. He's saying, whether you knew it or not, when you came to Christ, this is what was going on. You were turning aside from sin, you were obeying the truth, and whether you knew it or not, you were committing to follow Jesus on the path of love. If that's hard to, 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 to connect, just think about it this way. Jesus said, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Where was Jesus going with his cross? To die for his people as an act of love. So it's just right there. If we're following Jesus, we are following him down the path of Calvary love. Gruesome, bloody love. That's what being a Christian is. He laid down his life as our substitute. And the Christian life does not end when we believe that. It just begins. The Christian life is full of us walking in his footsteps. And this is why over and over again, the Bible describes love as the mark of a Christian. How do you tell whether someone's a Christian? It's not whether they can sign their name at the bottom of a really great statement of faith, although that may be an important part of it. And you know me, you know that I'm not downplaying that. But how do you, how do you tell? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John thirteen thirty five. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, 1 John three fourteen. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And praise God that he did that. But where does that go? And we ought to lay down our lives. For the brothers, 1 John 3.16. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 1 John 4.19-20. Christians love each other. They do. If they don't love each other, then they're not Christians. That's what John is saying. And this isn't an extra. According to Peter, this was baked right into our conversion to Christ. Repenting and believing the gospel meant purifying our souls by our obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. So, so there's the reason. 
You did this. And you can see how it connects with the command. If, if you got saved for love, which is one way of describing it, it's not everything, but it's one way of describing it. If you got saved for love, then do it. That's what Peter's saying. Then love each other, because this is what you got saved for. This is not an extra. This is not a bonus level. This is at the core of what's going on in your salvation. So put it into practice. That's first reason for love, because it is core to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be saved. Second reason. Reason number two for loving one another is that you've been born again. And we need this second reason because if all we had was the first reason, I think we'd have the feeling that this needs some balance, right? The first reason, you purified your soul by your obedience to the truth, it all seems like it's resting on us. Like it's all what we did. But Peter knows better than you and I that that's only part of the picture. And that's why in verse 23, we get a second reason, which runs parallel to the first reason. They're, they're running like, like two tracks on a railway, just, just right beside each other. And the second reason focuses on God's action in bringing us to himself. Look at verse 22. Since, okay, so, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's the command. And now second reason, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We could only purify our souls. We could only obey the truth. We could only repent and believe in Jesus. We could only do the stuff in verse 22 because God had already caused us to be born again by his pure mercy. So it's like... You, it's like being told to breathe, but you can only breathe because someone else made you be alive. And this all comes back to God's grace. All comes back to his mercy in giving us new birth. And this is a familiar idea, like we've seen. Peter's brought it up a lot. Now what's also familiar, it's very interesting to see these ideas that, that the Holy Spirit was putting on Peter's heart and inspiring him to, to write out here. Also familiar is these next words in verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable this contrast between what's perishable and what's imperishable, P Peter's talked about this a few times, right? Uh, our inheritance is imperishable, kept in heaven for us. We were ransomed not with perishable gold or silver, but with the blood of Christ. See, here, here's part of what's going on here, I, I believe. Or at least here's a way to apply this. So often, we can get it backwards thinking and feeling, thinking and feeling that the physical things we can see with our eyes are more real than the spiritual things that we can't see with our eyes. Like, the problem in front of you is more real than the promise that God gave you about that problem. The feeling of guilt in your heart is more real than God's promise to forgive us when we confess our sins to him. Okay? That your material possessions are more real than your inheritance in heaven. 
Isn't it true that when we can touch something, lay our hands on it, it feels more real than the spiritual stuff. And what Peter's doing again and again and again here is he's flipping the script. He's saying, no, no, no. This stuff, it's perishable. The spiritual realities, that's imperishable. So it's more real because it's longer lasting. It's going to be there when this stuff has passed away. The kingdom of God is way more long-lasting than the imperial power of Rome. Just think about that. For Peter's readers, what was the biggest thing for them at this point? It was the might of Rome that was trying to make it hard for them and even crush their faith in Jesus. Well, where's the Roman Empire today? don't, Don't we see this? Just lived out and this is what they needed to know so he draws attention to the fact that they've been born again and this new birth that they've been given this experience of being born again is not less real than the first time they were born it's like yeah you were born to your family that's the real thing and oh there's this new birth thing that's kind of oh yeah it's kind of special no 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 this new birth is more real than your first birth because you've been born again, begotten again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Now you might hear this talk about, that Peter's talking about, about God, our Father, begetting us with seed and think that this sounds a little bit like human reproduction. And it's supposed to. Peter is deliberately using these words to contrast how humans, how we as humans were begotten by our fathers the first time with perishable seed and a second time have been begotten by our heavenly father with the imperishable seed of the word of God. He's doing this on purpose. He's not the only one. John talks about this. John 1.13 we were born not of the will of man, but of God. That's talking, contrasting human dads with our spiritual dad. First John 3, 9. No one makes, no one born of God, you that language, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That, you were supposed to think about what he's saying and, and we shouldn't be embarrassed about that because John isn't, Peter isn't. So this language of seed makes us think about the contrast between human reproduction and spiritual reproduction, both owing to the will of a father, one with perishable, one with imperishable seed. Now, in the original language here, the word seed is also the same word for the seed that goes into the ground. And so it also makes us think about agriculture. And and we're supposed to. There's more than one thing going on. Just like farmers and gardeners bring forth plants By placing seed into the ground, so our Heavenly Father has caused us to be begotten and born again through the seed of His Word. See, that's what is the seed that causes us to be born again? Peter tells us the imperishable seed of the living and abiding Word of God. This is the seed that causes us to be born again. Where does new birth come from? So we don't want to neglect the the role of the Spirit in this, in bringing life. But what's the seed 
It's the word of God. James 1.18 talks about this. It introduces God as the father of lights and says, of his own will, the father of lights, of his own will, he brought us forth. There's this fatherhood language again. By what? By the word of truth. We were born again through the word of God. It is the word that gives us new life. It is the word that gives us the faith to believe in the first place. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's not our fancy arguments that convince people to come to faith in Jesus. It's the powerful living an imperishable word of God that gets planted like a seed and comes to life as our born-again souls. One of the best places to see this in the Bible, many of you are probably already thinking about it, is the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 1-9. There's the agricultural picture. The sower sows seeds, and Jesus says the seed is the word of God. Same idea as, as, as Peter here. And it's interesting, as, as you think about the parable of, of, the, of, the, of the soils, or the parable of the seeds, who are we in that parable that Jesus told? See, I think a lot of times I've heard it explained, it's like, we're the soil. And we're not. We're the plant. And I know I'm not preaching on Matthew this morning, but we need to see this to show that what Peter's saying and what Jesus is saying are so connected. When Jesus explains the parable of the soils, this is in Matthew 13, 20 to 21, here's what he says. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Notice Jesus does not say, as for the rocky ground, this is the one. No, he says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one. The rocky ground isn't the person. The person is what was sown and grows up on rocky ground. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the world. And he goes on from there. So in the parable of the soils, Jesus is saying the same thing Peter's saying. The word of God goes forth and our born-again selves grow up or in some cases don't grow up. Now here's what's so beautiful about this. This picture of seed causing God's people to grow is a, has a beautiful Old Testament background to it. When God made his covenant with David, he said, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And he says this again and again in the, in the prophets. Here's three examples. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Jeremiah 24, 6. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-eight. I will sow her for myself in the land. Hosea two twenty-three. Just a few. There's a few. There's a few others. There's this beautiful picture of God gathering His people again from the nations and planting them so that they might grow up. So with that background, what's Jesus saying in the parable of the soils? He's saying the time has come. The exile is ending. That promise that God made to plant his people 
It's happening right now as I preach the word of God, as if Jesus was talking, right? And those who hear with faith are the ones who are planted and grow up just like the prophets foretold. And Peter is using this same picture here. God is doing his great work of bringing the exile to an end by sending out his word and causing his people to grow up and be planted. And so we are begotten and born again, not through perishable seed, but through the living and abiding word of God. Isn't that beautiful? Just seeing that whole big Old Testament thing. And there's more. There's another big Old Testament passage here from Isaiah 40 we're going to look at here because Peter wants us to really get this living and abiding part, that the word of God is more real than human seed. And he wants us to grasp this. That is, that our new birth is lasting and permanent. So he turns to an Old Testament text, Isaiah 40. If you have your Bibles here open, and I hope you do, and if not, you can always grab one at the back on your way in. Turn to Isaiah 40. Because we're not just going to be reading one verse. And see, Isaiah 40 has this same big context of the exile coming to an end. As God's people have their sins finally forgiven. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. It's forgiveness. That she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, God's judgment is spent. And after promising that God's going to come to his people, he's going to level off mountains and fill up valleys so nothing can get in the way of him coming to his people. Verse 5 says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Which begs the question, okay? If you're a Jew in Babylon and the Babylonian Empire feels like the biggest thing in the world to you. And the idea of going home to Jerusalem feels like the hardest thing in the world to you. And you read Isaiah's prophecies, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You, you're going to wonder, well, how good is that mouth? How true are those words? Can I really bank on this? Can I really count on this? And that's why, what does Isaiah say next? A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what. All flesh is grass, including the king of Babylon, including the king of Rome. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty, like the flower of the field. Empires. They're no better than flowers. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Do you see what an encouragement that is to the, to the people in exile? Who cares about all these powers? They're just flowers. But this God who has just spoken that he's going to come and save you, that word of that Lord endures forever. God's promise will not fail because unlike people, his word endures forever. And Peter quotes that to say to the exiles that he's talking to, this word of the Lord endures forever. Now, so interesting here. There's a difference. See, Peter, Peter quotes from the Greek Old Testament, which is, is missing a, a brief part of the Hebrew. But Peter deliberately changes one part of his quotation here. Isaiah 48, the word of our God will stand forever. And what's Peter say? The word of 
the Lord endures forever. In Peter, the Lord is always talking about Jesus. So just this is just a little aside. Jesus and God, same, same person. I mean, Trinitarianly, we would say three persons in one God. Peter's pointing in that direction. The word of God, the word of Jesus, same thing. That's just a little cool thing we don't want to miss. But before you turn back to 1 Peter, before you turn back, look at in Isaiah 40, verse 9. It's the very next thing, okay? The word of our God will stand forever. And then we read this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah. So here's saying this word of God that abides forever. Behold your God. God's coming for you. Isaiah pictures a, a, a preacher, a herald, coming to the people of God to deliver the good news that this eternal God is coming to save them. Now look back at 1 Peter 1.25. Peter says, The word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And again, it's, it's hard to see in English, but we could open it up and I could show you this, that good news and preached are words that he's pulling directly from Isaiah 49. The good news that was being preached to the cities of Judah in Isaiah 49, Peter says, the word of the Lord is the good news that is being preached, has been preached to you. What Peter's saying here is so big and significant. I wondered, how, how do I even do this in a sermon? There's so many layers here. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you there's four layers to what's going on here. And you can go back and you can listen to this later if you, if, 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 if you want to catch all of this. Because it's just, it's so big. But we, we, can't, we can't skip over this. This is just glorious. First, here's the first layer. Peter is saying the good news of Isaiah 40 that the exile has come to an end, it's happened in Jesus. Isaiah pictured the herald of the good news preaching to the cities of Judah, and Peter says, that's what happened to you. In other words, that herald that Isaiah foresaw, those are the apostles who have come to preach to you that Jesus has risen, died, has died, risen, ascended, is coming again, and the exile, the, the long exile of alienation from God is over. God has come to save us. Isaiah 40 has happened in Christ. Okay, that's layer one. Layer two. Isaiah 40 preached hope to the exiles in Babylon that they would eventually go home because God's word was more permanent than the Babylonian empire. And Peter's encouraging his readers with the same truth. God's word that caused you to be born again is more permanent than the Roman Empire. Who cares if you're being persecuted by the most powerful empire on earth? You've been born again by something more permanent than that. Okay, that's the second thing. Isaiah's point is, is Peter's point, yet again. The Roman Empire and the Canadian government can try their worst. We know what's going to last. It's the word of God. Third layer, Peter's showing us, we have been born again through the word of God. 
whether whether we knew it or not, I mean, a baby doesn't know how it was conceived. It just has life. Whether you know it or not, if you are born again, this is how you were born again, through the word of God, the powerful word of God. Whether you knew it or not, someone proclaimed the word to you. And that seed fell on soil. And what grew up is your resurrected, born-again soul. Your new life. You were born again through this seed of God's powerful, effective, living and abiding word. And there's a whole sermon to be preached there on how we ought to use the word, right? If God's word is this powerful, we ought to use the word, folks, as we tell other people about Jesus. Fourth and final reason... Let's remember where all of this comes from. Fourth and final layer, I should say. All of this comes from Peter's command to love one another. How is the truth that we've been born again through the living and abiding imperishable word of God how is that a reason to love? So we've got to think hard about this. And if you're kind of confused right now, don't worry. I read some commentaries this week where the professional scholars are confused. How, how does this, everything we've just seen about the living and abiding word of God and Isaiah and everything, how is that a reason to love? Here's what we've got to remember. Remember the plural You. This is not you individually have been born again through the living and abiding. You together, born again, children of God, have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Which means that together you share a spiritual life that is more real and more permanent than any other bond on earth. You have a connection with people that is more real and more permanent than any other human connection. Think of it. You were born in a family by physical seed that's perishable and all flesh is grass. Your family connections are going to fade like the flowers of the field. You were born in a city, a town, a country and you have human you have human connections with other humans and that's flowers that are going to fade and shrivel up and die. Any human connection you have with any other human is based on perishable seed or flesh that's going to shrivel up and die like flowers. But the word of the Lord that endures forever has caused you all to be born again. Do you see Peter's argument now? Why we should love? This is your family. Bound together by something so much stronger than human genetics. Bound together by something so much more permanent than human genetics. The living and abiding word of God. If you have been born again, you are connected by family with a group of people that will exist and will be bound together long after every human empire, every human power, every family connection has shriveled up and died. These 
are your people. This is what Peter's saying. This born-again community, these are your people. These will be your people after the empires have crumbled. These are the people you're going to reign with on the new creation. Seriously, take a moment to look around the room here. Now, we don't know if everybody in this room this morning is born again. But for those who have, these are the people that you're going to reign forever in the new creation with. You're going to share eternity with these people because you've been born again by the same eternal seed. And it's so interesting how so often we prioritize human family connections as being way more real and way more important than our family of God connections. And I'm not saying our, our human family is nothing. Jesus took care of his mom from the cross. But what Peter is telling us is that our spiritual connection with one another is way more permanent and lasting than our physical family connections. So love one another. These are your people. You're stuck with them for eternity. Love one another. You see how this works now? You see how this works? Suddenly, when you think about the fact that you and I, if you've been born again, you and I are going to reign in blazing glory forever in a new creation. Suddenly, the, the, the little differences between us here on earth seem kind of small, don't they? Our little petty squabbles that so often break apart the people of God, they just seem really silly. That's Peter's point. This is your forever family. Begotten by an eternal seed. Love each other well. Now we need to wrap up here. Please remember, this is just part one of a two-part sermon. Next week, verse 22, and we're going to go back to the command to love. Chapter 3, what does it look like? But we can't get there. You can't get to love without these reasons to love. We love because it's what we were saved for. And we love because we've been all born again together by the same eternal seed. So how do we apply this? Well, that comes in many ways next week. But here's how you can apply it right now. Ask that God would help you to get this. That your heart would get this. That you'd feel the glory of being a part of a forever family. Pray now, even now, as we take a moment of of quiet, ask that God would help these two reasons that Peter's given us to soak into your heart and to then spring up in love for the people of God. Heavenly Father, would you do that? Fellow exiles, we want to love each other. Would you help us to do that, Lord? As we've prayed before this morning, Lord, if there's anyone that's here that has not yet believed, Lord, even this morning, would you use your word to create life? And may they see with the eyes of their heart the Son of God crucified for them and believe and be born again. And would you help us, God, as born-again people to love each other sincerely from a pure heart. Help us to get this, Lord.